You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 405 of this podcast. Today is Monday, June 6th, 2022, and therefore also the 78th anniversary of D-Day. From Wikipedia, the Normandy landings were the landing operations and associated airborne operations on Tuesday, 6th June, 1944, of the Allied invasion of Normandy in Operation Overlord during World War II. Codenamed Operation Neptune and often referred to as D-Day, it was the largest seaborne invasion in history. The operation began the liberation of France and later Western Europe and laid the foundations of the Allied victory on the Western Front. Planning for the operation began in 1943. In the months leading up to the invasion, the Allies conducted a substantial military deception, codenamed Operation Bodyguard, to mislead the Germans as to the date and location of the main Allied landings. The weather on D-Day was far from ideal, and the operation had to be delayed 24 hours. A further postponement would have meant a delay of at least two weeks, as the invasion planners had requirements for the phase of the moon, the tides, and the time of day that meant only a few days each month were deemed suitable. Adolf Hitler placed Field Marshal Erwin Rommel in command of German forces and of developing fortifications along the Atlantic Wall in anticipation of an Allied invasion. U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt placed Major General Dwight D. Eisenhower in command of Allied forces. The amphibious landings were preceded by extensive aerial and naval bombardment and an airborne assault, the landing of 24,000 American, British, and Canadian airborne troops shortly after midnight. Allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of France at 0630. The target 50-mile, 80-kilometer stretch of the Normandy coast was divided into five sectors, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Strong winds blew the landing craft east of their intended positions, particularly at Utah and Omaha. The men landed under heavy fire from gun emplacements overlooking the beaches, and the shore was mined and covered with obstacles such as wooden stakes, metal tripods, and barbed wire, making the work of the beach-clearing teams difficult and dangerous. Casualties were heaviest at Omaha with its high cliffs. At Gold, Juno, and Sword, several fortified towns were cleared in house-to-house fighting, and two major gun emplacements at Gold were disabled using specialized tanks. The Allies failed to achieve any of their goals on the first day. Carentan, St. Lo, and Bayou remained in German hands, and Kine, a major objective, was not captured until 21 July. Only two of the beaches, Juno and Gold, were linked on the first day, and all five beachheads were not connected until 12 June. However, the operation gained a foothold that the Allies gradually expanded over the coming months. German casualties on D-Day have been estimated at 4,000 to 9,000 men. Allied casualties were documented for at least 10,000, with 4,414 confirmed dead. Museums, memorials, and war cemeteries in the area now host many visitors each year. I note, as I look at this, 
that both the 82nd Airborne and 101st Airborne Division took part. And one of my brothers-in-law belonged to the 82nd. The other belonged to the 101st. Very proud of that fact. Also, my grandfather, Richard A. Renew, served in the U.S. Navy, stayed back in Britain and helped to patch up wounded men coming back from the storming of the beaches of Normandy. That took a huge toll on him emotionally and psychologically and mentally. And he was never the same after what he saw in June of 1944. But I am thankful for the men who endeavored, risked their lives, even lost their lives in trying to take Europe back from the Germans. What the Germans were doing was awful, horrible, evil, wicked, no good, and rotten. And thank God for men of courage who were willing to lay down their lives and also take life, if needs be, in pursuit of justice and a merciful relief of the people of Europe from the yoke of tyranny. Very awe-inspiring and just mind-boggling. To use hyperbolic language, I don't know uh, if we can. It is awe-inspiring to think of how many men lost their lives at what cost that beach was taken back from Germany and then gradually the rest of Europe was taken back from the Nazis. Just absolutely mind-boggling. But besides just it being D-Day, I have a essay I would like to read. And this essay I wrote recently at the request of a friend, and I don't know for sure that it will be published anywhere else, but at a minimum, that is the upside to having my own podcast, my own website. I can publish this essay right here. So I'm going to read it for you, and then I want to talk through some of these points in a little greater depth because I think this is important. I think it's important for us to have the right idea about these things. And if we don't, not only do we not have the right idea about this topic in particular, that is miscegenation, interracial marriage, if you will, it is not enough that we would only have the right idea about interracial marriage, but I think that interracial marriage can be a way of dealing with several other attendant issues that reveal what we believe, rightly or wrongly. So let's just dive right in. I'm going to read this essay for you, and then we'll talk through it, starting from the top. Those opposed to interracial marriage in the U.S., both in our day and historically, have often cited Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, as a support and cover. There we read, God forbade Israel from intermarrying with the peoples God would drive out of the promised land, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to be precise. Verse 3 reads as follows. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Yet here it is important to note what the stated basis was for the objection God had to these anticipated unions. 
What God cites in Deuteronomy is not either the genetic inferiority or superiority of one or another of these tribes and people groups, nor does a careful reading of the biblical text and context support the view that God was merely maintaining Israel's separateness for the sake of separation. On the contrary, the explicit reason is in the text. Verse 4 continues, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Intermarriage between the sons and daughters of Israel and the daughters and sons of surrounding nations would lead Israel into idolatry, specifically the worship of the gods of the surrounding nations. We see this cited also in Malachi 2.11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Yet, as prominent examples throughout the Bible make clear, the holiness, plans, and purpose of God were often served by strategic intermarriage between certain children of Israel and those of other peoples. For just one example, we have Ruth, who is not only commended despite being a Moabitess, she's in the genealogy of David and thereafter that of the incarnate Savior. The critical difference in her case is that she pledges herself to Naomi's God being her God and the Naomi's people being her people. And one not only can surmise that such makes all the difference in the world, but this conclusion is also needful and inescapable. So also we have the case of Rahab, who had formerly been a prostitute, but then harbored the spies sent into Jericho as the children of Israel were coming into the promised land to possess it. Rahab had heard what the Lord was doing from a distance, and she believed. And not only was she spared as a result from the just destruction visited on her city, so also her family was spared, and even Hebrews 11.31 commends her faith. But then she married Salmon, an Israelite, and thereafter she became the mother of Boaz, who in turn married Ruth. And here, too, we find her in the genealogy of both David and thereafter Christ, despite the fact that hers is a clear example of interracial marriage. And not a single solitary word of contempt or condemnation is to be found in the biblical text toward her, but only commendation. So also, we should commend her and her husband. Still later in the Old Testament, we find the entire book of Esther predicated on a beautiful young Jewish woman named Hadassah being born for such a time as this, when her people are in peril due to the vicious schemes of Haman. Yet what is it? that God orchestrates through Esther becoming a consort of King Ahasuerus, nothing less than the salvation of his people from plotted destruction. This is to say nothing of the settling of questions in the New Testament concerning Jewish and Gentile believers alike being intermixed in the early church. Their long-standing racial distinctions and divisions were set aside for the fact of their common brotherhood and fellowship in Christ. And even Peter is corrected by God in a vision in Acts 11.9, What God has made clean do not call common. Reading the entirety of that passage as well, it is impossible to conclude that the point of the vision was primarily concerned with clean and unclean foods or what meats should or should not be considered kosher and fit for consumption. On the contrary, we find in the 18th verse, the dawning of the realization which explained the purpose of the vision Peter saw of a sheet descending from heaven with all manner of animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, then, we see that the priority for God is primarily 
who puts their faith in him for salvation? It seems clear to me, then, that so-called arguments from the scripture against racial miscegenation are a pretty egregious example of capture by vain and human philosophy, then eisegeting scripture over and against taking the plain meaning of the biblical text where the prohibition in Deuteronomy is concerned. Moreover, speaking personally, as someone who hails from Scott's stock on his mother's side and Swiss on his father's, it is a happy thing, to my mind, that salvation was not for the Jews only, but also for all people. Or what else should be the conclusion from Revelation 7, 9 through 10? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How can it be? in light of such passages in both the Old and New Testament, that someone might assert that all the saints will gather around the throne and before the Lamb in praise and worship, yet we would actively discourage or else condemn young men and women who alike are in Christ from marrying here as they have the occasion and interest. I should think such need to hear a voice from heaven telling them what God said to Peter, what God has made clean do not call common. Yet stubborn critics persist regardless. My own grandmother on my mother's side was one before she passed away three years ago, never one to be ugly to anyone on the basis of their race. She, like her own great-grandfather before her, was a schoolteacher by trade. But he served and helped save the Union Army by leading the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers with distinction at the Battle of Gettysburg, and she nevertheless told me once that she didn't think it was proper for people of mixed races to marry. And her reasoning was not that it was inherently immoral, but that it wasn't fair to the children of such unions, that they would be rejected by both parents' races. My own research has shown me that some of my earliest ancestors in the New World on my great-grandmother's side took Indian women for wives a long time ago. A certain Thomas Blaylock, 1581 to 1660, listed as a survivor of the starving time in John Smith's History of Virginia, 1624, married a Nassawattucks Indian woman named Rachel Cates in 1627 and had five children with her. And his great-grandson, Millington, married a Chowanoke Indian woman named Elizabeth Morning Green in 1741 and had 11 children with her, both before the 13 colonies declared independence to become the United States of America. Yet the funny thing about such discoveries is how at a certain point, after so many generations, one is surprised to make them. And I think the reason one is surprised sometimes to find racial diversity in their family tree is for one simple fact. We're all family. The Bible teaches that all men descend from the one man, Adam, and even from there, after considering the flood, we all descend from another one man, Noah. The fact that the family tree branched out from there to fill the earth was not accidental or erroneous, but by God's design. Or why else did he say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? For my part, it matters not at all whether my sons and daughter someday marry the descendants of other tribes, so long as all the above are in the second Adam, that is, Jesus. But perhaps all the more rather than less. The rationale my grandma Renew gave for why interracial marriage should be discouraged is a reason the church ought to celebrate the union of Christian men and women, whatever their respective ethnos, so long as they remember their first love and are true to one another. So, there you have it. There you have it. That is 
in a nutshell, my view on miscegenation or interracial marriage, if you will. And come to think of it, as I was writing this, as I was thinking through the topic, as I was considering it, I actually know a fair number of folk who are considered interracial couples. My neighbors, two houses down, I suppose you could say. For instance, the Chavez's, JP and Monica. They're an interracial couple, if you will, kind of, sort of. Although, again, at a certain point, you don't think of it that way because it's like, well, they're just family, right? They're not two races. They're one family. We're not different races. I I get a kick out of being told that I'm an honorary Hispanic, for instance, by J.P. Chavez and Roy Garcia. I joke that my name needs to be changed to El Garetto or something like that. But the honest fact is we're all family. So what's the difference, right? If we're all in Christ, that makes us one people. This is to say nothing of my brother. My brother is married to a woman of color. There is nothing whatsoever about her being a woman of color that makes her any more or less a part of our family. My nephew, Caden, his skin tone is not the same as my kids, but what's the difference? Family is family. He's family. That is my nephew. No more or no less than if his skin tone were exactly the same as my kid's skin tone. For that matter too, as I highlighted in this essay that I just read for you, as I look back through my genealogy on my mother's father's mother's side, the Blaylocks, there's not one but two that we know of ancestors who married Native American women. They married Native American women before the United States of America was the United States of America when it was just 13 colonies still. Not even 13 colonies, I think, in the case of Virginia, Thomas Blaylock. But the point is, what is the difference? The point is, who do they belong to? Who do they hail from? To say that you have different categories of people based on the color of their skin or where in the world their ancestors came from, and we're going to treat them either better or worse, we're going to maintain separation from them, strictly on the basis of ethnic difference, physical difference, skin color differences, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, culturally, I can understand there being difficulties or challenges when there are different cultural norms. Linguistically, I can understand there being challenges. You know, it's it's kind of the reason why God mixed up the languages was that he wanted mankind to stop just camping out at Babel. He wanted them to spread out all over the world. So he confused the languages. But that is to say, too, if the languages are not a barrier, is there some reason to suppose that God wants us to be separate just because our ancestors came to be, were born and lived and died in far-flung regions of the world? What would be our reason for supposing that? I can't think of one. I really can't. I think it is just something that people come up with, honestly, to try and justify what they want. 
But what does God want? That's the question in my mind. Okay, there's what we want, and can that be permissible? Yeah, all things are permissible. Is it beneficial, though? And for that matter, do you become a slave to that way of thinking? I think that's a big point that is very often missed. You know, people of color in the U.S. especially, if they are listening to community organizers of a leftist bend, if they are being indoctrinated in our public schools or by our corporate media or on social media or in pop culture, they will very often conclude that racists need to be hated and they need to be destroyed more or less. Destroy them. Find them, root them out, destroy them. And my thought is, you know what? Actually, wouldn't it be a lot better if you changed their minds? Are you actually changing their minds, just destroying them any chance you get? Any even remote hint at racism you find? Wouldn't it be better to talk with them about what they actually believe and where they get these ideas? And wouldn't it be better to persuade them? Because actually, shouldn't we pity racists? Shouldn't we? Because there's an... And and don't misunderstand me when I say this, but there is an ignorance to having an inherent distrust or contempt for someone else on the basis of their ethnos. Are we denying that they are descended from Adam? Are we denying that they are descended from Noah? If we are not denying that, if you are not making some evolutionary claim that they evolved from some other branch of primates than we did, if you are a Christian and your source for knowledge about our origins ultimately in God is the Bible, you don't have a leg to stand on in rejecting whole categories of people just because they don't look like you. There's no basis for that. Now, culturally, can we have conversations about certain things which are traditional or routine, or valued? Can we have debates about that? Can we have discussions about that? Is this good? Is this not good? I should hope so, and I should hope that we could have those conversations without accusations of racism flying hard and fast. I mean, for my part, I look at my history. I look at my own heritage, my own ancestry in Scotland, and in Switzerland especially. And I think to myself, you know what? If I were my ancestors, I think I would have left too. It's not for no reason that they left Scotland and they left Switzerland and they came to the new world to try and create a new life for themselves and their posterity. It's not for no reason. And I look at some of what was going on in Switzerland and in Scotland when my ancestors left and came here. And that's a story for another day, but yet that's the story for today too. I look at some of what they were leaving and I think, you know what? Not all of Scottish history and heritage should be celebrated. Not all of Swiss history and heritage should be celebrated. Just because they're my ancestors, that doesn't mean I need to approve of everything that they did. God forbid. They were sinners. I'm a sinner. I've got enough to contend with of my own foibles without embracing all of theirs as a matter of course, just because they're my ancestors. Now, I think it's fine. I think it's a fine, fine thing if someone hails from some different part of the world and they are proud of their family. 
hey, my family did honorable, decent, praiseworthy things, memorable, remarkable things, and I celebrate that. Good. That's good. That is well. Just also be willing to be honest if some of your ancestors turn out to have done some not great things. You know, that really is at the heart of what God intended when he told Israel to not give sons and daughters in marriage to the people of these seven tribes, these seven nations that he was driving out of the promised land before them. That really is what's at the root of it, is the people I'm driving out, I am driving out because they worship these false gods, because they are wicked and evil and corrupt. You intermarry with them, your sons and daughters marry their sons and daughters, or their daughters and sons, more to the point, and then your kids start worshiping their kids' gods, and we're right back where we started. The same reason I drove them out and am driving them out is the same reason I'll drive you out. Can't do that. But but the the main point is not anything to do with race and ethnicity, which actually is supported by the fact that God threatens to destroy (laughs) those who worship other gods from among the people of Israel. He lays claim to Israel. He says, you are my people. You are my son. I have called you. I am your God and you are my people. And this is the covenant that I make with you. And don't go worshiping other gods. You will have no other gods before me. And if you do, if you do worship other gods, I will give you over to those gods and to the surrounding nations to dispense with you as they will. And they will. They will tear you to pieces. And that will be your just desserts. But we look at this, we look at this issue of racial miscegenation, I think wrongly when we think, as my grandmother did, and I loved my grandmother. She was a major blessing to me and my brother and my kids and my wife before she passed away, right up until she passed away. But I disagreed with my grandmother when she said that she didn't think it was proper. She didn't think it was right for people of different races to get married. And her reasoning, I understand it. She was thinking in more pragmatic terms. That won't be well-received. That will be met with hostility. The people of the father's origin and the people of the mother's origin will both alike reject the children that they have and the two of them together. And that's just not, yeah, why would you want that, right? Like that's just a mess. That's going to be heartbreaking and sad and lonely and a very vulnerable place to be. Why would you want that? And my thought is, well, actually, especially in the context of the church and God's people, how much better than just defining down degeneracy. I would just Whatever people are going to react ignorantly to, that's what we're going to endorse and accommodate. No, rather than that, what you do is you say, either A, what my ancestors did, what your ancestors did probably in coming to the new world. Hey, you know what? Let's go somewhere else because this is not working out. You know, Go somewhere where there's going to be a more accepting culture, for instance, a more accepting context for you to raise your family in, or B, the church can be the church and celebrate and affirm and endorse and use those difficult conversations as a vehicle for explaining 
what the Bible actually tells us about where we come from and how important that is. Now, some people on this point, some people take the whole business about answers in Genesis in a very similar light, very, very similar, actually, at its root. The answers in Genesis, Ken Ham, creationism, content, efforts, endeavors, what have you, upset people. And so then the contention is, well, maybe we just shouldn't get into all that because it's going to be upsetting for people. You know, maybe we should just focus on the gospel. Yeah, but as Ken Ham points out, what is the gospel? And do you have the gospel if you have eroded and discarded the authority of Scripture? Do you any longer have the gospel if you allow for a rejection of the authority of God's word? And obviously that question's rhetorical, and the answer is no. But I think this... And I I think I'll just read it again from Martin Lloyd-Jones' Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, the general introduction. I haven't gotten any farther because I'm just reading this page five and six front and back, and I'm struck by how critical this is for an introduction. If we could get this, if we could wrap our arms around this, it would make a world of difference. It would absolutely transform our minds. It would transform our minds. He writes, actually, he preached, but then it was written down. Alas, I digress. It is a wise rule in the examination of any teaching to proceed from the general to the particular. This is the only way of avoiding the danger of missing the wood because of the trees. This rule is of particular importance in connection with the Sermon on the Mount. We must realize, therefore, that at the outset certain general questions have to be asked about this famous sermon and its place in the life, thought, and outlook of Christian people. The obvious question with which to start is this. Why should we consider the Sermon on the Mount at all? Why should I call your attention to it and to its teaching? Well, I do not know that it is a part of the business of a preacher to explain the processes of his own mind and his own heart, but clearly no man should preach unless he has felt that God has given him a message. It is the business of any man who tries to preach and expound the scriptures, to wait upon God for leading and guidance. I suppose fundamentally, therefore, my main reason for preaching on the Sermon on the Mount was that I had felt this persuasion, this compulsion, this leading of the Spirit. I say that deliberately because if I had been left to my own choice, I would not have chosen to preach a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And as I understand this sense of compulsion, I feel the particular reason for doing so is the peculiar condition of the life of the Christian church in general at the present time. I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. That judgment is based not only on contemporary observation, but still more on contemporary observation in the light of previous epochs and eras in the life of the church. There is nothing that is more salutary to the Christian life than to read the history of the church, to read again of the great movements of God's Spirit, and to observe what has happened in the church at various times. Now, I think that anyone who looks at the present state of the Christian church in the light of that background will be driven to the reluctant conclusion that the outstanding characteristic of the life of the church today is, as I have said, its superficiality. When I say that, I am thinking not only of the life and activity of the church in an evangelistic sense, in that particular respect. I think everybody would agree that superficiality is the most obvious characteristic. But I am thinking not only 
of modern evangelistic activities as compared and contrasted with the great evangelistic efforts of the church in the past, the present-day tendency to boisterousness, for example, and the use of means which would have horrified and shocked our fathers. But I also have in mind the life of the church in general, where the same thing is true, even in such matters as her conception of holiness and her whole approach to the doctrine of sanctification. The important thing for us is to discover the causes of this. For myself, I would suggest that one main cause is our attitude to the Bible, our failure to take it seriously, our failure to take it as it is and to allow it to speak to us. Coupled with that, perhaps, is our invariable tendency to go from one extreme to the other. But the main thing I feel is our attitude towards the scriptures. Let me explain in a little more detail what I mean by that. There is nothing more important in the Christian life than the way in which we approach the Bible and the way in which we read it. It is our textbook. It is our only source. It is our only authority. We know nothing about God and about the Christian life in a true sense apart from the Bible. We can draw various deductions from nature and possibly from various mystical experiences by which we can arrive at a belief in a supreme creator. But I think it is agreed by most Christians, and it has been traditional throughout the long history of the church, that we have no authority save this book. We cannot rely solely upon subjective experiences because there are evil spirits as well as good spirits. There are counterfeit experiences. Here in the Bible is our sole authority. And I quote, So, we come to this question of racial miscegenation interracial marriage. And I think to myself, someone could say, you know, I don't think we should get all worked up and get other people all upset about interracial marriage. Just don't do it. And what does the scripture say? It says, as much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. So therefore, you shouldn't get into all that. You shouldn't get people all upset because They're opposed to your interracial marriage, and then you go and get married to someone of a different race, and how could you? No, that's not the way that works. That is not the way that works. There have to be boundaries. That is not a reasonable way to accommodate ignorant people. I'm sorry. It's just not. It's not. Now, I reject, to be clear, I reject the idea that we should marry outside of our religion. If my children someday come home telling me about some lovely, in the case of my seven sons, some lovely lady they've met who is beautiful and smart and successful and well-spoken, who is creative and charming, but worships some other God. What should my answer be? Say nothing of her ethnicity, her race. I don't care if she speaks English. I don't care if she's an American. I don't care if she is 100% Scottish descended or Swiss descended, I don't give even the smallest care. You thought I was going to say something else, but I don't give even the smallest amount of care to whether she checks those boxes if she is not a Christian young woman. No, son, that is not a good idea. That is not a good idea. She doesn't know the Lord. She doesn't fear the Lord. She doesn't love the Lord. No. Now, by contrast, my son comes home. He's been working. He's been hanging out with friends. He went to the store whatever. Not right now, but let's say in 10 years, for instance. He says, I met this beautiful young woman and 
she's a Christian and we share the same convictions and we have the same theology on the really big important questions of who is God. She believes in the Trinitarian God. She believes in Jesus. She loves Jesus. She is a Christian. She believes in the sufficiency and inerrancy and authority of Scripture. She studies and she's from Africa. And she's from the Middle East. And she's from East Asia. And she's from South America. And she's from Australia or some island nation. Do you know what my response is? Great. You should have her come over for dinner. We'd like to meet her. That's great. That's great. Because the core, critical, essential, important thing is, do we worship the same one true God? And if that's the case then God certainly has used marriages between children of different tribes to great effect throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of the world. Certainly in our family history, I think we're no the worse. We're no the worse. (laughs) I think we're okay. You know, it's a funny thing. I actually, I think to myself, not that it makes someone better. It doesn't make someone better. But from a health standpoint, actually, and then this is something I got into a debate with somebody I, I used to work with, an operator that I used to work with at my previous job. He's a midstream gas plant operator. And he was from Texas, and he's a good old boy of good old boys. And he was letting me know, waxing eloquent about how it's just not right. It's just not right for people of different races to intermarry. And I told him with respect, actually, you don't have a leg to stand on. I mean, from a <laughs> from a personal opinion standpoint, sure, you you can have your own opinion, but you can't say authoritatively that you have the authority to decide what is right objectively, what is good and righteous and godly and morally correct. You can't tell me you have the authority to dictate that, particularly if the test is what has God said. And that should be the test. That should be the test. If God has said don't do it, well, that's enough. And yet those who are against miscegenation, who claim that the Bible is against miscegenation, all they have to go on is what God told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. But even there, they don't rightly handle the word of truth. It's so, so important. You know, some people, I think, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is exactly right. Some people are way too careless in their handling of the word of truth. And so they come to a passage like that where God tells the Jews, he tells the Israelites, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Can't be any clearer than that. But why? Right? But why? Now, when God doesn't give us an explanation, that's important because perhaps for all times, in all cases, it just is what it is and it doesn't need to be explained. And yet, when he does give us an explanation, we do well to not just remember the command itself. We do well to consider the context and to consider the reason. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Wow. Okay. But what if 
This is a match between two believers. There's no question of idolatry because they both fear the Lord. What then? And also, too, it's interesting to me that the specific tribes, the specific nations, the specific peoples are listed. These are not all of the people groups in the whole world. The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites are listed specifically in Deuteronomy here. And also, the reason God has is listed here explicitly. So I told my coworker, I told my friend, I said, you know, from a, from a biblical standpoint, I would ask, where do you get that from? Scripturally, biblically, and then you get a lot of hemming and hawing. And, well, you know, I just, I, I just don't think it's right. I just don't think it's right. You got to say it like that when you're from Texas. I just don't think it's right. Okay. Well, cool story, bro. Like, it's not the test. The, t- <laughs> this, the Bible would be a much shorter book if it was just like, hey, whatever this guy thinks is right, do that. Now, actually, if you read Judges, it's <laughs> a whole lot of really messed up stuff that happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that goes for what you think is right. And it also goes for your response to things that you think are wrong. The two go hand in hand. Now, if God has said such and such is wrong, evil, rotten, no good, awful, don't do it, don't approve of anybody who does it, don't celebrate anybody who does it, no. Well then, you do well to consider that right and correct and to abide by it, whether you fully understand it or not, whether you fully like it or not. But where God has not given a prohibition on something, it is not proper It is not proper for us to come up with prohibitions, to come up with really, really complicated systems by which we enslave one another and ourselves. It's not proper. That is not right. We should not be trying to bind one another's consciences in such manipulative, foolish ways. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that I think we should all who are unmarried go out and try and find as ethnically a diverse candidate for spouse as possible just to make people uncomfortable. No, no. But if you just so happen to find one who loves the Lord and you love them and they love you and it's agreeable, I think you having racial differences would be a very sorry reason to not get married. I think that would be a very, very sorry reason. And actually for that matter, from a <clears throat> you know, if, let's just say, and I'm, I'm not saying people are dogs or dogs are people. I think that's weird. You start talking to me about how your dogs are your children. You're a dog mom. You're a dog dad. Like, that's weird. You should have some actual kids, right? Like, have some actual children. Enjoy your dog. That's fine. Whatever. That's I, Dogs are great. But that is not your child. And stop it. Stop it. But... Insofar as the analogy works, that dogs can be like people, there originally was a certain dog kind from which dogs descend. And insofar as people in the past few hundred years have gotten very, very particular in selectively breeding dogs for certain traits and creating the vast majority of dog breeds that there are by being selective in what traits they bred for, 
what you find is the more specialized the breed, typically the worse their health problems because they get less and less and less genetic diversity. And the genetic code breaks down harder and faster the purer the breed is versus when you have mutts. I'm sorry, like I don't, I guess I don't know another way to put it, but I don't say it in a pejorative way. Mutts typically, as far as dogs go, are healthier. They're typically much healthier because they have more of a complete genetic makeup. And so actually I told that to my former coworker. I said, you know, like from a practical standpoint, like here's what I believe. I believe that when God first made Adam and Eve, we were totally whole. We were totally integrated as much as we were going to be integrated from a physical standpoint. Our genetic code was complete. Nothing was broken. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But then sin entered the world. And as soon as sin entered the world, as soon as that first disobedience happened, we started breaking down. Our genetic code started breaking down. And it took a while, but over the generations, more and more and more is broken in us. And in different parts of the world, maybe there are certain things that we have more of a proclivity to having broken because of genetics. Maybe there is more of a tendency towards heart disease, for instance, or more of a tendency towards getting diabetes, for instance. I don't know. I'm not an expert on genetics. But what I do know is that when I read the genealogies at the beginning of the book in Genesis, I see people living for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And then as you go along, by the time you get to Noah, those lifespans are dropping off hard. And all of a sudden, God says, that's enough. I'm paraphrasing. But God determines that man is going to live for decades instead of centuries. And from then till now, we live for decades. And we have illness, we have disease, and the eugenicists, the utopians, have been trying for 100 years. That was the whole reason why you know, today is D-Day. You know what you should be thinking about when you think of D-Day is you should be thinking of a highly scientific industrial Western nation, actually arguably the most advanced Western nation at the time, trying to take over the world to cleanse our race, to cleanse the genetics of the human race as they saw it. The super science also totally absurd because you think that this ethnos, the blonde hair, blue-eyed, Aryan ethnos is superior to all others. You're going to write yourself a blank check to eliminate everybody else. Really? Really? How does that work? Well, the short answer is that it doesn't. <laughs> it does. It doesn't work. Don't do it. <clears throat> Stop it. Um, in closing, <laughs> I am thinking I might actually start a new thing with this podcast. It could be fun. We'll see. We'll see how long it uh, holds interest. And if you guys like it, let me know. But I happened to pick up a book from the Boulder bookstore in Boulder, Colorado. When my wife and I recently took a trip to Idaho Springs on our way home, we stopped in Boulder for the first time, went through Boulder for the first time. And of course, we like big books and we cannot lie. So I picked up this Poetry of Scotland, The Poetry of Scotland, edited and introduced by Roderick Watson. 
and it is a massive tome. Uh, what, over 700 pages, something like that. Just remarkable. Uh, for $10, $10. The guy that did the checkout, he said that he kind of keeps an informal inventory in his mind of the best bang for the buck in terms of size of book for price or dollars per page, <laughs> uh, pages per dollar, if you will. And he, he thought this might actually be the winner of everything that he's seen uh, people buy there. $10 for an over 700-page uh, Poetry of Scotland anthology. But I think I'm going to read for you a little bit here that uh, it could be fun because I, you know, more than anything else, I hail from Scots stock uh, on my mother's side. Scots and Irish and English uh, makes up the majority of my ancestry with some Germanic Swiss uh, mixed in as well from my dad's side. A little bit of Welsh too, which is kind of cool. But this is a poem by a John Barber. I'm going to read for you. 1320 to 1395. Uh, 1320, there's a question mark. They're not actually sure quite when he was born, but there's a quick little uh, biography they've got before the poem itself called The Bruce. It says, John Barber first appears in the records as Archdeacon of Aberdeen in 1357. He studied in Oxford and Paris before gaining the post of clerk and auditor to the exchequer of Robert II. In recognition of this and of his epic poem about the present king's uncle's father, he was awarded a royal pension. Written around 1375 and dealing with historical events which took place around 60 years before, The Bruce is the earliest long poem to have survived in Scots. It combines many of the actual details of Bruce's life and campaigns with the romance values of chivalric combat and noble, if simplified, fortitude. Yet it also speaks for the common folk and a new concept of patriotism and individual freedom in what was otherwise a narrowly dynastic and feudal age. This is the significance of the tale of the camp followers whose intervention was said to have helped turn the tide at Bannockburn. From the Bruce, Book One, A Preface. Stories to read are delightable. Suppose that thy be knocked both fabil, then sold stories that soothfast were, and thy war said on good manner. Have double pleasance in herring. The first pleasance is the carping, and the tother, the soothfastness, that swash the thing wrecked as it was. And sooth thinigs that are likened. Thilmanis hearing are pleasant. Therefore, I wald fain set my will, give me wit, mict suffice thartle, to put in word a soothfast story, that it lest a firth in memory. Swath at na time of lent it let, nagar it haily be for it. For all the stories that men readis, Representis to thyme the deedis of stalwart folk that liveth are. Ricked as thy then in presence war, and certis thy sold while have pris, that in thy time war wicked and wis, 
and led their lif in great travail, and oft in hard store, off battle, one great price off chivalry, and war void it off cowardly, as wes King Robert of Scotland, that hardy wes of heart and hand, and good scur James of Douglas, that in his time so worthy was that of his press and his bounty in Sir Landis renowned was he. Of time, I think this book to ma, now God give grace that I may swear, tret it and bring it till ending, that I say not but southfest thing. Cuin Alexander, the king was dead, that Scotland heads to stare and laid. The land six year and mare perfay lay desolate after his day, till that the barnage at the last assembled it time and feign it fast. To chase a king their land to stir, that of ancestry common were. Of kingis that oct, that raut, and mest had ricked their king to be. Kun sicker Edward, the mighty king, had on this wis done his liking. Of John the Belial, that Swiss one was all defect and undone. To Scotland went he, he then in high, and all the land gan occupy. Sahel, that both Castell and Town, were until his possession, Frawake and in Orkney, to Muller snook in Galloway, and stuff it all with Englishmen, Shuffreys and Baileys made he then, and Elkin other officers, that for to govern land, Aphoris, he made of English nation, that worth it then Sarek Felon, and so wicked and covetous, and Swahotan and Dispotus, that Scottish men nicked do nothing, that ever nicked please to their liking. Thou wifest wald, thy oft furly, and thou doctress dispitously, and gif only of them thou art war wraith, thy wetum him will with great scathe. For thy sold find son in Shethon, to put him to destruction, and gif that only man thine by had only thing that was worthy, as horse or hund or other thing, that war pleasant to their liking, with ricked or rang, it have walt thy, and gif only wild thyme with say, thy sold swa dung, that thy sold tine, uther land or life or laif in pine, for thy tempt them after thy will, tekened na kept to ricked. Skill. Ah, quit thy dempt thine felony, for good nicts that war worthy, for little anxious than or than thine, thy hanged be thy neckbane. Alas, that folk that ever was free, and in freedom want for to be, throw thy great nuisance and folly, war traitor, then say wickedly. That thar face thar jugis war, quot wickedness 
may man have mar. And cut. What did I just say? <laughs> the point being, I think that if we stick too hard to only marrying within our race, we will find ourselves very confused and very divided. Unless we define race as the Bible does. And unless we are thinking in terms of our people as Christians being God's people. First and foremost, are we worshiping the God who saves? Are we serving him? I'm not a Scotsman. I'm an American. Beyond that, I'm a Christian. I'm an American Christian. And that's enough for me. And as long as we can have conversation, we can understand one another, we can serve the good Lord, I think that's enough. I think that's all we can ask for. That's all we need. But I got to leave it there. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.